Well, Nathan's prayed for us, so let me uh, open, ask you to open up your Bible to Luke chapter 1 uh, this morning. As we begin a new teaching series today, we're calling it Eyewitnesses. And over the next several weeks, this month of December, uh, as we head towards Christmas and even the Sunday right after Christmas, we want to examine and see what this whole story of the Christmas story, what this, this nativity scene, we want to see it through the eyes of those who were there. How can we perceive what they saw and, as it were, from the scriptures, uh, taste and, and see just a glimpse of what they caught and the way that God worked in their lives uh, in that. And so we'll be looking in the Gospels of Luke and Matthew uh, over the next several weeks. So we're in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 uh, to 38 this morning. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open that up there. Is the idea of peace on earth a, a mirage to you? Is that, is that maybe a, a nice sentiment, but, but nothing more than just something that makes you feel a little bit warm? When you think about the idea of peace on earth, is that something that you kind of chuckle at and say, I, I don't even know if that could even remotely be true. You don't even think that that could actually be the case for us. It's not something that's just new to our time. 21 years ago, Bono of the band U2, he, he croned these words in his song, Peace on Earth. He said, heaven on earth, we need it now. I'm sick of all of this, hanging around, sick of sorrow, sick of the pain, sick of hearing again and again that there's going to be peace on earth. He wrote this song in the aftermath of a domestic terrorist attack in a small community in Northern Ireland there was a car bombing in a small town. It killed 29 people, and another 220 in that community were injured from that. And in response to that, he, he wrote this song, and he, he continued to sing, and he said, Jesus, can you take the time to throw a drowning man a line for peace on earth, to tell the ones who hear no sound, whose sons are living in the ground, peace on earth. Jesus, in the song you wrote, the words are sticking in my throat, peace on earth. I hear it every Christmas time, but hope and history won't rhyme. So what's it worth, this peace on earth? And maybe you resonate with those words, especially after this week and especially after the heartbreaking tragedy in Oxford and the school shooting there. Maybe you feel the anxiety and uncertainty that even surrounds our own community and our own schools and families. And, and even beyond just this week, you look at the world and you look at what's going on and we see the rise of another viral variant, violence in all corners of the world. There's famine, hardship, natural disaster, suffering. And we wonder if this idea of peace on earth is really just an illusion. It's a mirage. Maybe, maybe that's how you feel in your own hearts. You say this idea or this concept of peace on earth, it's impossible. It's a myth. It's a fairy tale. It's just some sort of opioid to keep us uh, satiated for just a little longer to spur us on one step down the road, but, but it's, just, it's just elusive. It's not real. Maybe it's not the big things or the big truths about peace on earth or not maybe where you're struggling, you're wrestling some to degree, but, but maybe it's in the smaller and more intimate concerns of your life that you, you feel that's the places where the impossibilities really sit. Uh, perhaps you have a a child that you wish would and desire and hope that would come to Christ, but they just stand and, and they stand opposed to God. They're, they're not there yet. They're, their life is just being lived as their own, and it, and it breaks your heart. And you wonder, is it, is it impossible for them to know Christ? Will they, will they ever come? 
Maybe perhaps you're looking for reconciliation and restoration with some relationships that have been strained or, or perhaps even broken, and it feels so impossible that those relationships would be mended and restored. Or you look at your own life and you see that there is just a significant struggle with habitual and enslaving sin, and, and the desire to be free of that is there, but the, the ability to get there and the, the freedom that you truly seek from that is so out of your grasp, and it feels impossible. Whatever it might be, whatever you feel this morning is impossible, the incarnation of the Son of God, which is the truth, the reality that we celebrate at Advent and in Christmas, that God became a man and dwelt among us, that event was the greatest impossibility in the world up until the resurrection. And it demonstrates for us, as we, as we think about the, the advent of Christ and his first coming and his incarnation, it demonstrates his power and his love to us. The coming of the Son of God as a fully human baby is God's show of power and love to give us hope that nothing is impossible with God. In Christ coming as a baby, becoming fully human, fully man, he begins to tease and reorder the world so that when it comes to his suffering and his death and his resurrection, we can be ready to see and embrace God does impossible things. That Nothing is impossible with him. Now this morning, as I said, we're going to be looking at the story of the incarnation from the perspective and the vantage point of those first witnesses. We want to see what they saw and from their sight lines discern what God is doing in the world and, and what this means for us today. We'll stand in both the narratives of Luke and Matthew and their gospel, but we're, we're going to zoom in on the characters of Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and even the wise men, all to see what they saw about Jesus, the eternal Son of God who became a man and came for us and our salvation. This morning in particular, I want to take us through the story of Mary, through the eyes of Mary, particularly in the moment when the angel Gabriel came to her and made this spectacular announcement that she would bear the Messiah in her womb. And I want to walk us through this text this morning and help us see that nothing is impossible with God. And from that, develop a couple applications, a couple ways that we can, we can live this out. And so if you have your Bible, again, go to Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. I just want to walk us through the story here. I want us to, to immerse ourselves in the narrative. What was happening here? What was Mary seeing and feel, feeling? Now Luke tells us in verse 26, he drops us right into the middle of this, this larger story that's actually begun in chapter 1 as he introduced us to uh, two people, Zechariah, who was a, was a Levite serving in the temple, and then his older barren wife, Elizabeth. They had no children. The scripture says that they were advanced in years and no children of their own. Luke brings us into the story there, and, and he tells us that an angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah and told him that Elizabeth would bear a son in her old age. And as, as the angel described it to Zechariah, he said, this son would be great before the Lord, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before, them in the, before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This angel was telling Zechariah and Elizabeth that their son would be the forerunner, 
the preparer. John the Baptist is who he is. And, and sure enough, God kept his word. Elizabeth conceived. This barren woman is pregnant now. And, and here we meet this story at the six-month mark of her pregnancy. Luke says in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, now Gabriel, we, we understand from the scriptures, is one of the highest in all rank of angel, angelic beings there. And God sends him with a message. That's what angels are. They're, they're messengers sent from God. And, and so Gabriel is sent by God to the city in Galilee named Nazareth. The place is significant, but it's not significant because of its significance. It's significant because of its insignificance. And Nazareth was no place at all. In fact, apart from the stories of Jesus that we read in the gospel accounts, Nazareth is not given any reference in ancient literature. Not in the Old Testament period, not in any of the intertestamental literature. Josephus hardly mentions it. Nobody talks about Nazareth. There's no place town. Out in the boondocks, it was nowhere. May have been, some scholars estimate, a town of 200 to 500 in population at its height. I mean, people, everybody knew everybody in this small little community. And there's where Gabriel, this powerful, majestic angel of God, sent to nowhere to meet and proclaim a profound message. Instead of the centers of power and glory and spiritual prominence like Judea and Jerusalem, God goes to an out-of-sight, out-of-place little town to proclaim a powerful and utterly astounding word. And we find in verse 27 that Gabriel is sent to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now this, this woman, this this virgin, Luke mentions that twice over. He wants us to understand her status. He wants us to see what, what the obstacle is that God is going to overcome and deal with. Luke mentions her twice as being a virgin before ever naming her. He describes her, names her as Mary, so that we get an idea of the clarity of what God is going to do in her. And the reality is that God is going to do this as a result, not of human activity or natural uh, sexuality, but of his power and of his grace. We find that this woman, Mary, she's betrothed. That is legally engaged to be married. It's a legal binding uh, reality. And she's married or engaged to this man named Joseph. Her name is Mary. Now, Gabriel shows up and he presents to Mary this, this amazing reality. Here again, as Luke mentions to this virgin, and he says her, her status twice, he's pre- Luke is not presenting Mary as some sort of holy vessel or, or somehow some worthy individual that, that God has finally found to, to, to inhabit and to, to work through for his glory. Rather, her virginity is presented here in this text as an obstacle to conception that can only be overcome by the miraculous. Her status as a virgin is essential Christian doctrine. When we recite the Apostles' Creed, we proclaim that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. What would take natural human work and and realities to bring about, we have to see that God is going to do something greater. Gabriel appears and he, and he comes with a greeting. He came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. I just want to point out here the gospel order. Before Mary had done anything, before even her response in verse 38, God is declaring and stating that Mary is a recipient of grace. 
Before Mary had done anything from God or been obedient to his will, God is pouring out his love. He is bestowing upon her his favor and his kindness and his love. He calls her favored one. God gives grace first. He he identifies his love to her first before he ever calls her to obey or calls her to any action. This is the order of the gospel for us. God loved us first, and so we ought to love him. Zwingli, the Swiss reformer, he put it this way. He said, we learn from this phrase, Mary, full of grace, that that phrase should not be understood in the sense that she was full of grace from herself, but that all the grace with which she was richly filled came from God. For to be full of grace means nothing else than to be most beloved of God, to be made worthy and chosen from among all other women. For grace is the goodwill of God alone. God bestowed his grace upon her. He he singled her out and identified his love on her. Again, not because she was worthy of it or because she earned it or had performed well for it, but because God, purely out of his own designs and plans and of his great love, chose her. Gabriel describes and declares to her, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And here's a declaration of assurance Mary, you're loved by God, and he is, he is with you. This declaration is not about a set of outcomes, but it's a reminder that she is called to a person. She is called to the Lord himself, God himself, Yahweh, the Lord is with you. Martin Luther, he noted that Gabriel might have gone to Jerusalem and picked out Caiaphas's daughter, who was fair and rich and clad in gold-embroidered raiment and attended by a, a, a village of maids-in-waiting, But God preferred a lowly maid from a small, insignificant town. God goes to the -the out-of-the-way places, to the unseen people, to the forgotten and the look-over, to the poor and to the lowly, to the anonymous. Gabriel comes to her and proclaims God's love and God's favor and God's presence on Mary. Now, if you were her and you heard that proclamation and even that that greeting, the Lord is with you, you're loved, you belong to him, you might be stunned too. You might be a little bit confused. And certainly that's Mary's case. She says in verse 20, or Luke says in verse 29, she was greatly troubled at the saying, trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. What is he saying to me? What is happening here? Who is this person? What is going on? That's just Mary's response. Verse 29, by the way, if you want to understand the scriptures, it, it, it details to me that Luke probably had an, a, a sit-down with Mary. He interviewed her about this whole story. She is giving an eyewitness account. And so Luke, as a good historian, is, is referring to and, and remarking about, here's what Mary said about this whole situation. Gabriel spoke and said this, and she was like, I, this was just astounding and confusing and amazing. I didn't get it. I was trying to figure out what he was saying and and what sort of greeting this might be. Gabriel picks up on this in verse 30, and he says to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. He's drawing out what's happening here. Again, he he reminds her, don't be afraid. And he affirms to her that she is the object of God's love and grace. And again, I'll note this. It is prior to her doing anything. God's grace comes to us first and foremost. The good news is not that we clean up ourselves or that we get ourselves righteous or that we somehow show up as all-stars before God and he goes, yeah, now you can be loved by me. 
It's quite the opposite. He loves us first in our sin, in our failure, in our brokenness, in our anonymity. He shows his love on us. It's the order of the gospel. And so we get to the core of what Gabriel is saying to her. Mary, you've found favor with God, not because of anything you've done, but because God loves you. And behold, he says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And Gabriel announces to Mary, this virgin young woman, probably a young teenager, that she would conceive and give birth to a son. And the identity of this son is significant. The whole focal point, I love this passage because here is the center of what happens here. The identification of and the nature and the glory of the Son of God is, is proclaimed. You will call his name Jesus. The Hebrew equivalent to the name Jesus is Joshua, which means the Lord is salvation. God is going to come and he is going to save. Gabriel goes on to say in verse 32 that he, this son, will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Here's the glorious identity of the Son of God become man. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He will be great. Son of God Almighty. He will rule. The Lord God, his father, will give to him the throne of his father David. That is to say, Jesus will sit on the throne of the people of God and rule forever and ever. His dominion will have no end. His kingdom will last eternally. This was the hope that Israel had for their Messiah. Here in Gabriel proclaiming this to Mary and that she would be the one to bear the Son of God. Here he is telling her, this son that is coming, he's going to make all things right. All of Israel's hopes, all of their desires for Messiah, all of their leanings and asking for a king, here it is, here he is, Jesus, the Son of God. Mary would be the integral means of God's unfolding redemptive plans. As you think through the whole story of the Bible, from the very beginning pages at the fall when Adam and Eve disobeyed, to Abraham as he was sent by God to a place he did not know, to the, to the children of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes of Israel, and then to Moses and the, Egypt, uh, the, the exodus from Egypt and the wilderness wandering, there's always been this sense in the scriptures of who will be the one to deliver us. Who will be the one who, who fulfills the promise that would crush the head of Satan, even though Satan would snip at his heels. Who would be that one? And here now in God's redemptive, great and glorious plan, he identifies and says, here's this king that's been promised. This, this one who would sit on the throne of David, who would rule forever and ever. He's coming into the world. Mary, you're going to be the means of God's redemptive plan being unfolded. What a profound statement of grace to her. That God would use her in a significant and powerful way in all of human history. Mary is wrestling with this. She's trying to understand, well, frankly, verse 34, how will this be? <laughs> how is this going to happen? And she, she's right in understanding herself. She says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Mary knows it takes a man and a woman to make a baby. And she has not known a man. That's literally what the Greek there uh, states. I have not known a man. She has not been uh, intimate with a man sexually. So how will this happen? 
Uh, perhaps that she is thinking this through and thinking, well, maybe this will come about in the natural, normal way of things as I'm betrothed to Joseph. And, and after our marriage, after we're wed, then in our normal um, intimacy as a, as a married couple, God will bring about this baby. But, but she, she has to think spiritually here. She has to think much more largely. This son will be declared and will be the son of the Most High. How does the Son of God become a baby? Her question raises the issue. How can she, a natural human being, give birth to a child who is God? And Gabriel knows this. He answers her question. This is not a question, by the way, of doubt. It's a question of faith seeking understanding. She believes what Gabriel says, but she's trying to, to wrap her mind around the miraculous and the supernatural here. And so Gabriel answers. He helps her see what God is going to do. The angel answered, verse 35, and said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, it's important that we understand what is being said in the precise language of this passage. What God is declaring here is that the Holy Spirit is the divine agent of this miracle. By his power, he would overshadow Mary and the natural means necessary for conceiving a child. The, the, the language here is never used in ancient literature of sexual relationships, nor does it ever have that connotation. We shouldn't impose that upon the text here. God is not intimate with a woman to produce an offspring. This term overshadowing is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Exodus 40, verse 35, to speak about how the Holy Spirit coming upon and overshadowing the tabernacle itself and manifesting his presence and glory. So somehow the Holy Spirit would, in his power, overshadow the Virgin Mary and she would be with child. God would supersede and overseed, overshadow Mary by his power and overshadow the natural human way of conceiving so that what would be conceived in her would be of God. Leon Morris, a New Testament scholar, puts it this way. He says, the delicate expression rules out a crude idea of mating of the Holy Spirit with Mary. Gabriel makes it clear that the conception will be a result of divine activity. This boy will be the son of God. And to verify this, Gabriel gives Mary a sign. He points to her relative, Elizabeth. Remember Elizabeth that I mentioned at the beginning? This aged, barren woman, who's identified earlier, Gabriel points to her and says, This one, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son and is in the sixth month with her who is called barren. He says, Mary, if you want validation on what I've just told you, if you want verification of the word of God, go visit your relative Elizabeth. You'll see she's pregnant. God is at work here. He is bringing about his full plans. He is doing exactly what he said he would do. And his conclusion on this is in verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. The, the limitations of humanity, the, the things that we would look at as natural or ordinary, God has all the power in the universe to, over, uh, to, to supersede to overshadow, and by his power, nothing can stop his will. Now, I'll save Mary's response here uh, for just a moment later, but the enunciation of Christ we see here is God's powerful work and ability to do what we would perceive is impossible. From Mary's vantage point, her concern for how this would come about is valid. She's asking the right question. 
How could she, a mother, without rightful natural human procreation, bear a son? It's a question that she, she asked, and it projects on our minds as well about the things that are, we see as impossibilities. Here's the point. If God can overcome this obstacle of her virginity to bring about the Son of God, what can't he do? Can peace on earth be a reality in God's power? Absolutely. Can transform marriages and lives and hearts and attitudes be accomplished by the power of God? Absolutely. Can the reconciliation and restoration of relationships that are strained, even the worst of strained relationships, happen by the power of God? Absolutely. Are all things going to be made new by the power of God? Yes. Nothing is impossible with God. As an eyewitness, Mary would hear these questions and she would say, yes, absolutely. And that happens through her son, the son of God, Jesus the Christ. Christ has come for us. He has come to show that God, his, his arm is not short. His power is not weak. He is not limited by the capacities and the realities of this world, but he can do everything and anything that he wills and desires because he is God. A couple particular applications stand out to this reality from us that nothing is impossible with God. When we hear this story and we see it through Mary's vantage point, we go, okay, God, what does that mean for us today? Well, first of all, it means that when God calls, he provides. When God calls us to himself, when he calls us to obedience, when he calls us to sacrifice, when he calls us to the hard things of this world, he also provides for us the very means and the realities to see those things through. When God calls us to himself and calls us to be agents of grace and mercy in the world, he provides all that we need to those ends. The ultimate revelation of his provision for us is in the incarnation of the Son of God for us and for our salvation. We stood, we stand in, in sin we stood in our sin, broken. We've been enslaved to Satan, sin, and death. We're separated from God apart from Christ. And as Paul says in Ephesians 2, we have no hope and we were without God in this world. In our sin, we're under God's curse and we're doomed to eternal death. And yet, God provided his son for us. This, this story, this annunciation of the coming of Christ is the reality of God providing exactly what they need for his people. God bringing all that he is to bear on our lives and showing us that nothing is impossible with him. The son of God becoming a human being through the virgin birth, he brought hope to the world. And more than just hope, he actually came and did everything necessary to rescue and deliver us from our death and hellbound fate. Uh, Fleming Rutledge says in her book, Advent, The Once and Future Coming of Jesus Christ, she says, it is beyond the capacity of human parents to produce a child who is God. Humankind cannot bring forth a Jesus any more than it can bring forth true and lasting peace. Only God can do it. Only God will do it. Only God Mary was just as helpless as Joseph to make this happen. The human impossibility is overcome by the irresistible power of God. God is the one who provides. So Jesus came, born of a virgin, and suffered and died in our place for our sins to reconcile us back to God. 
Think about what that means. If God calls us to trust in him by faith, if God calls us to himself for salvation, it means he will provide the salvation for us. And he's done that in Jesus. It's at this that we should pause and consider God's provision for us in the sacrifice of Christ through the Lord's Supper. I want to stop my sermon right here in this moment and invite us to consider Jesus coming not just as a baby for us in our salvation, but coming to sacrifice himself, lay down his life, and to die for us. It's in the institution of the Lord's Supper that we remember that God has provided his Son, the Son of the Almighty, the Son of the Most High, the Son who reigns and the Son who sits on the throne forever and ever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The Lord's Supper tells us that God has provided his Son for us to save us from our sins and to give us new life. He is our hope and our salvation. So let me tell you what the Lord's Supper is. The Lord's Supper is a symbol in the bread and in the cup that speaks of Christ's body and blood given for us. Jesus himself instituted the Lord's Supper as final Passover meal with the apostles by taking the bread and a cup. Luke 22 says this, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So this morning, we'll eat the bread and drink the cup, remembering Christ's sacrifice for us. If you want to take the elements and just begin to open them up, you can this morning. The Lord's Supper is for all those who believe in Christ and trust in him by faith. The Lord's Supper is for those who have placed their hope in Jesus for their salvation. So I invite you to take these elements and follow with me as we partake together as God's people in faith of what he has provided for us. Let me give you a moment here to just pause and pray silently yourself, ready yourself to partake of these elements and then I'll lead, them, I'll lead us in prayer and in receiving the bread and the cup. Let's pray silently where we're at. Father, we thank you that nothing is impossible for you. And that as you call us, you provide for us as well. You've called us to Christ, to believe and to put our hope and our faith in him. And you've provided him as well for us. He is our hope and our salvation. He has come and lived the perfect life that we couldn't, died on the cross for our sins, and was raised to life again that we might have the hope of new life. You have provided everything we need so that we might be reconciled to you. So Father, this morning as we partake of the bread and the cup in remembrance of Christ's sacrifice for us, would we trust you more and more? Would we see that you are the God from whom nothing will be impossible? Grow our faith now and we thank you. The bread of, reminds us it's a symbol of Christ's body for us, his giving himself physically as a human being and fully God on our behalf. So let's take and eat and remember that Christ became a man and gave his body and life for our redemption. Do this in remembrance of him.
And in the cup, we remember Jesus' blood. We remember that he went to the cross and that he shed his blood. He laid down his life as a sacrifice for our sins. So let us take and drink and remember that Christ became a man and shed his blood to forgive us all of our sins. Let's drink this in remembrance of him. Christ and Christ alone, we have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. He is the means by which God provides for us. He is the one who will bring peace on earth when he comes again. He will make all things new. And even now, he's working in the impossible situations and in the scenarios of our life to bring about his glory through the power of the Holy Spirit. When God calls, he provides. But there's one other application from this text. It's, it's there, the last verse. It's the response of Mary. And that application is that when God calls, we have, a, we have a recall. We have a response ourselves. When God calls, we respond. Now look with me at Mary's response here in verse 38. She hears this incredible news. The Holy One of God will, will be conceived in her womb. And she will bear a son. His name will be Jesus. He will reign forever and ever. Mary hears this and she says, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. The angel departed from her. Imagine this young, early teen girl in this nowhere town, in this nowhere place. No no wealth, no power, no prestige of her own. And yet God sets his favor on her. And and, and places before her probably one of the greatest challenges and the greatest uh, trials even that a young woman could go through. And her response is faith. She presents herself as the servant of God. The King James translation says, let me be, behold, the handmaid of God. She's ready to serve. Her, her, her posture towards the word of God is humility and sincerity, ready to do his will. And it's an instructive posture for you and for me. When we hear God say to us, are you ready to do my will? How do we say? How do we answer? Are we ready to say, yes, I am the servant of the Lord? Maybe let me ask it this way to you. Where are you failing to say that in your life right now when you are called to trust God's word? Everything that Gabriel pronounced to Mary is the word of God. And so as we have the scriptures, as we hear the word of God We are either responding with faith and obedience and humility as Mary was, yes, I am the servant of God, or we are opposing God and putting our hands up and saying, no, thank you, I'm going to do my own thing. Friends, are you responding to God and his word, his pure word with refusal or with rejection? Or are you taking God's word and receiving it with faith and obedience? Are you receiving his word with humility and with worship, ready to be used by God in every way? We, we look at Mary and we, we affirm her because of the unique place that God gave her in, in human history. She is the one who bore the Son of God. And we don't worship Mary, but we respect her for what she did, what God did through her. We, we say, yes, would we follow her example of obedience and humility as she trusted the word of God? Friends, you and I can be used as, by God as a means of his grace 
an instrument of his mercy in the world, or we can attempt to stand in God's way and be utterly defeated by the God who will not be thwarted by anyone. The God of grace and mercy with whom nothing is impossible calls us to respond to him with worship, with faith, with obedience, and hope. So the the question is here before us as we see God's impossible power at work through Mary. We must ask ourselves, how are we responding to his great and mighty word? The eyewitness testimony of Mary at the Annunciation of Christ is a call for us to trust God who does the impossible. It's a testimony to remind us of the God who is all-powerful and to, to remind us to trust him, to look to him, to respond to him with faith and hope, knowing that the circumstances and realities that seem so far beyond our ability and power to change, God can. We see through Mary's eyes, the eyes of faith, that God will do all that he has willed and purposed. And in seeing that, we can trust him to keep his promises because he has already done everything necessary to bring us to Christ. How are we responding to the God who does impossible things? Is it worship? Is it humility? Is it trust? May it be so. May it be so. Let me pray now, and then we're going to respond together and worship to our God. Lord, we thank you for the Son of God, Jesus, who was sent born of a virgin Mary. We thank you that you show us that nothing is impossible with you. So may our posture and response be to you and to your word in all that you call us to in life. Behold, God, we are your servant. May it be to us according to your word. Do this for the sake of your glory and for our good, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.